actually probably other investors coming into the same time, right? How much money you're planning to raise and what are you going to do with that? And and what are what you know, then what is the return, as you said, you know, the return on that investment going to be, right? We think we're going to spend, you know, this, let's say we're raising two million dollars. We're going to spend this two million dollars on these six things. That's going to get us to this point, right? X number of customers, X amount of revenue, you know, this growth trajectory, this kind of burn rate, you know, and you know. In early stage investing, you know, those fine type of financial. Yo, this is Christian D. Evans with Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our amazing podcast. This is where we reveal the top 1% of business concepts and systems and processes to scale eight and nine figure businesses. We interview top level eight and nine figure CEOs, business owners, and amazing TEDx speakers like David Meltzer. We got Nick Cavuto, Pascal Bachman, and so many others. And if you feel like this resonates with you, please share this with your friend, your family, and make sure you impact them as well because we're trying to spread the message on those that do not know how to scale eight, nine-figure businesses and talking higher-level business concepts. So guys, remember, enjoy the episode and be uncommon if you can. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning in to Journey with Christian D. Evans Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christian D. Evans. Now, this next guest is a high-caliber investor that's been in the industry for 20-plus years in the technology world. They've seen the ups, the downs, the sideways, the craziness, the all-around. And the reason why I wanted to have him on is because he is actually the CEO and founder of Epps Creek Venture which is a incredible portfolio company that has Ask the Internet, uh, Hall Hub, National Semiconductor, Sycamore Networks, and Trenchery. There are so many different companies that he has. Now, his strategy is actually very unorthodox. Most investors have more of a spray and pray mindset where they go out there, write them all checks, a lot of different things, and pray to God that hopefully one of them will produce and develop and create. Brady actually does a very active kind of uh, investing role and position. Plus, he's more of, hey, you know what? I want to invest in the quality, not the quantity. Please welcome my next guest. Like I mentioned, the CEO and founder of Epps Creek Ventures, my friend, Brady Murray. How are you doing today, Brady? I'm great, Christian. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Man, I'm excited about diving into this because, you know, one, first of all, right off the bat, I love the way your methodology of, hey, you know what? I'm not going to go out there and write a thousand bajillion checks to a lot of different companies that spray and pray kind of mentality. Now, my question though, Brady, is during your journey, why did you pivot away from that mindset where a lot of VC and PE, a lot of companies kind of gravitate toward versus more of this kind of strategy, which is, hey, you know what? I'm looking for quality and not quantity. Sure. Uh, you know, Christian, I think Part of it was really driven by probably the largest part of it was was driven by my own personality. Um, and so, you know, I think there are people who are um, investors that that like to look at a million things at once. But I come from a, an operations background, right? I worked in technology for 20 years in operating roles. I was doing things like business development. So I was, you know, running sales organizations, building strategic partnerships, running marketing groups, that kind of thing. And so, you know, when I look at, you know, any unique skills I might bring to the table as an investor, there are those things, right, that, that career I've had. And, you know, on the other hand, my ability to look at 100 companies and write checks and invest in 40 or 50 of them all at once and say, okay, I think these are the best 40 or 50, right, there, there are people who have done that for their entire career and are going to be better at it than I am. 
Whereas if you look at, you know, maybe getting a little more hands-on with one or two startups, advising their CEO as they think about, you know, how do I solve this problem? How do I find product market fit? You know, how do I build a partnership with this larger player in my industry? You know, what what new challenges should I be thinking about for the next year? Those are kind of problems I have solved before. And so I feel like I can add value in those areas and maybe pro provide some, you know, differentiation, if you will, from, from what others do. So it, it was probably driven mostly by, you know, where I felt like my own skills lay and the way I could be helpful and, and, and maybe give myself an advantage over other investors. Now, that makes perfect sense. And let me ask you this, Brady, because talk a little bit offline about your deal flow and what that looks like. And I thought that was really interesting because one of the technology you know, field or ecosystem, there's a lot of deal flow, a lot of opportunities. But like you were mentioning, there's you know the, the AI, the artificial intelligence, the crypto, the blockchain, all these fun you know, kind of cutting edge stuff. But Brady, your strategy, very simply, and I'd love to unpack this a little bit, is where it may not be sexy, you know, deals or deal flow or companies. However, though, they're sustainable and you all know that they got a proof of concept, they got traction established. So help me understand, um, you know, kind of what that looks like in regards to your criteria or your methodology when you're kind of interpreting or looking at that deal flow and saying, hey, I want to invest in this XYZ company. Sure, sure. Uh, I, I think it's a great point, Christian. I think it's, you know, um, a lesson for all investors to keep in mind is, you know, uh, the the world in general, you know, the tech press in particular spends a lot of time on whatever the latest, hottest, sexiest thing is, right? It was Web3 and crypto for a long time. Now maybe seems like it's drifting away from that more into things like AI and other stuff. And um, I, I don't say that in a disparaging way. There are lots of great companies being built in those areas. Um, there are lots of bad companies being built in those areas. And so when I look at my ability um, with sort of an objective eye to find the best companies, um, convince them that I'm a useful investor and they should take my check, um, I have to think realistically that you know there are, there are bigger names in terms of angel investors out there. There are folks who write bigger checks than I do. And if I was the hottest startup who had everyone knocking on my door saying, I want to invest in your company, I want to invest in your company, why would I pick money from Brady Murray, right? I wouldn't, right? It's just not, <laughs> not what I'm going to do. And so, you know, as, as I think of trying to be a successful investor, I could, I could, you know, pretend that that isn't true and say, no, no, I'm going to find the best companies no one else will find, um, which might happen or might not. Or I could say, you know, there's some other areas, maybe not the hottest, most sexy, but you know, big old industries, sometimes, you know, I, I call them underserved, some people say unsexy, um, you know, but places where technology can make a big difference and create a real opportunity for a startup to, you know, build a, build a successful business. And because those areas are a little less crowded, because there are less investors chasing them and less companies chasing them, it feels like a, a chance for me to actually make some good investments and, you know, potentially, you know, with, with my expertise and help, you know, help some of these companies grow and be successful and, and hopefully, you know, turn a nice financial return um, without having to compete in the busiest areas. So when you're looking at a company, are you looking at more pre-revenue kind of base or are you more looking at a growth, stra um, you know, kind of a growth stage? And then as well as they got some traction, they got proof of concept, be the pre um, you know, pre-seed, 
or you know a Series A? What kind of help me understand what you're looking at, or is it really contextual depends upon the product or the, the the company that you're looking at in general? Help me understand that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very good question. One of the things I like about um, investing on my own, um, so F Creek Ventures is my own creation. It's my own money at work. I have you know no outside partners, no outside investors, um, and it gives me a lot of flexibility. So, um, you know, lots of venture firms have a specific stage where they invest, right? Seed and pre-seed or series A, B, or we're growth investors. You know, we do later BC stage type stuff. I don't have those restrictions. I can invest wherever I want. Um, I tend to invest more in the very early stage. Um, I feel like one, it's where I can be most helpful, right? Um, smaller teams are more likely to need some advice and help from, from an investor as opposed to, you know, if you've got a company with three or 500 people, um, you probably have a lot of smart people already sitting around the table. Um, so I, I, I tend to do earlier stage stuff, sometimes pre-seed, you know, times, sometimes, you know, first money in, just, you know, uh, an entrepreneur and an idea. Um, sometimes I go a little later, you know, series A type stuff. Um, and, and then very, uh, very rarely I do some late stage stuff as well. Um, you know, if it's something I'm very high conviction on or, or maybe know someone very well that's doing it. Um, and, and the other thing that's nice about, you know, kind of the independence I have is, it allows me to invest in multiple rounds. So I will often invest, you know, at the very, very early stage with a company. If I, you know, feel good about their prospects, um, I can then, you know, follow on with larger checks at, at later times, um, which is which is something I like to do. Um, and then, you know, the other thing I, I do occasionally is uh, I'll pull together what's called uh, an SPV, which is a, a special purpose vehicle. Um, probably a term you're familiar with for the audience in, in case you haven't. Um, you can think of an SPV as really a venture fund that's raised for one specific deal. Um, so with a typical venture fund, right, you'd go out and raise a big pool of money from investors and invest it across a wide range of companies. With an SPV, I go to my network folks who, who might have, you know, interest in investing in technology companies. And if I feel, you know, very strongly that there's, there's a good opportunity here, I'll say to them, hey, here's a deal I'm investing in. If you're interested, here's the opportunity for you to invest as well. So basically, we set up an LLC uh, to invest in that one company, um, and so that's uh, that's you know again uh, a thing you're seeing actually probably more and more in the venture industry these days. Even some some large funds are doing you know sidecar deals and, and SPVs. Um, but as a as a solo angel investor, it's a nice way for me to occasionally allow other people to participate in what I'm doing. Nice. So you're looking for more of that that pre-seed right at the beginning. Um, early stage investing. Now, when you're looking at it, I've talked to a lot of um, you know investors, and when they're having that criteria, that conversation, it's not so much as about the financials of that company as much as it is about the founders. Uh, I'd love to get your perspective. Are you, when you're looking at a deal, um, obviously you need to do your due diligence. So, what does that look like for you? What are you? What's that checklist? What's that criteria? What's your what's your methodology? Um, if if you do have one, what, what does that look like, Brady? Sure. I, I think it's a great question, Christian. And I, I think there's, there's a few for me sort of table stakes type, type of items that I, that I have to check off first. Um, and then I think you're exactly right that ultimately uh, the most important decision for me comes down to the founder and, and my feelings about them. Um, you know, the, the table stake things to, to check off first would be, you know, some basics around is this a good industry and a good business to pursue, right? Lots of businesses out there in the world, um, lots of different opportunities. 
Um, you know, frankly, most most things I see probably don't pass that first bar of, you know, um, is this a big enough opportunity, right, is one. So, you know, as an example, say you want to open a restaurant. Um, you know, you're just a, you're a good cook. You like to open a restaurant. That's great. It could be a great restaurant. If you're a good cook and you know about business, you can open a successful restaurant. Not something I'm probably going to invest in because as a, as a venture investor, you know, restaurants don't offer that return level that I'm looking for. Um, so, you know, is this a big enough opportunity? Is there a big market here that if this company is successful, they could grab a large part of and create a great, great financial return. Um, and then of course you look at all the basics, you know, uh, does the business model make sense, right? Are we are we selling something we can actually make money on? Is there um, a customer out there who wants to buy this thing? What does the competition look like? You know, do we have some sort of differentiation from that competition, right? Why why is this business going to win and the other one's going to fail? So all those are the basic things. And you know, in my experience, in going through that process with an entrepreneur, getting to know them, learning how they see their market. Um, they're obviously going to know a lot more about whatever market we're discussing than I am. But thinking, you know, seeing how they think about it, you know, how realistic are they about the possibilities? You know, how aware are they or what else is going on? That that sort of thing gives me a feel. And then ultimately, as you said, Christian, in the very early stage, it really is the in the entrepreneur, the founder who you are making a bet on. Um, does this woman or man, you know, give me the feeling that I think they could really make something special here. And, and, and so, you know, you, you go through all those checklist items that, that are kind of um, must haves. And then even if all those pass, the question then becomes, okay, ultimately when I look at this person, do I feel like they're the type of person who's, who's going to have a chance to be successful? And, and, and so that probably becomes the biggest factor. Gotcha. So when you're looking at these kind of deals for these uh, these companies, you're looking at like letters of intent. Hey, what's what's the traction? What have they gotten this far? And then also, you know, really emphasizing that founder. Now, I, I've heard this numerous times, and what I find so interesting about you know kind of gravitating toward that founder is it's very intuition. Uh, it's like the same thing when you're a CEO and you've hired and you've hired really good people and you've hired really bad people, you just get that experience of you kind of know, and you don't know exactly, there's no personality test, there's no like, you know, questions or anything, you just have yeah. this feeling and this synergy. So I want to ask you, Brady, is there something that you look for? I would imagine prior experience, hey, have they exited, you know, companies before, have they been in this industry for X amount of years? But outside of that, is it just an in intuition that you have, Brady, that's like, hey, I got this good feeling uh, about this founder? Or are there other kind of characteristic or attributes that that founder should have that say, hey, I know uh, from previous history that um, this, this, this company is going to go very well? Sure. Um, it, it's probably uh, a part intuition, and, um, but a part of it is, is, is very sort of measurable along some, some metrics. So we, we talked earlier about how I often invest in companies that focus on underserved industries, right? And one common mistake in, in those industries is you have people coming in from outside the industry trying to introduce a new technology and expecting to go well, right? So I'm coming into the logging industry, right? And it's, uh, you know, I've never worked in logging. I don't really know any loggers, but, uh, you know, I can read all about the industry and see how it's done and say, oh, yeah, this is inefficient. That's inefficient. Boom. I'm going to invent a whole new process and I'm going to bring it and everyone's going to use it and everyone's going to be much more efficient and do great. In my experience, 
those type of founders rarely succeed. Um, doesn't mean it's impossible, but I, I'd much more likely feel confident in someone who's worked in an industry beforehand, right? So, you know, I, 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 I worked for a logger for 10 years or, you know, my family worked in the logging industry or, you know, what, what have you, you know, some connection there. Um, and that it doesn't mean only people from the industry can be successful. You can be successful as an outsider. But again, you'd want to see, and, and you referenced it, Christian, some track record of success, even if it's in if it's in another industry, then it, it has to be a related industry, right? Um, and that doesn't mean a, a first-time founder can't be successful, but it is a, a much higher bar. And you know, with a with a with a first-time founder or, an, or a founder who's early, you know, I think it's important then to really dig in on how are you going to get this product to market, right? I mean, you, you heard the phrase over and over again, we all have product market fit, right? Finding that right product that the market needs. And that's, that's always a challenge for an early stage startup. But, but another challenge is, you know, even if you have the right product, if you will, if you found that product market fit, convincing people to use it. And, you know, it doesn't mean, you know, particularly in an early stage startup, you may not have, you know, tens or even hundreds of customers online, ready to go, et cetera. But do you have what feels like a feasible plan to get there? And, and have you, you know, done the homework to understand how you're going to do it? And so those are all, you know, sort of the basic things I think that, that I go through. Um, but, but there are others as well. Um, you know, you, you, you spend a lot of time judging um, and trying to make decisions based on, on personality, you know, does this person respond quickly to emails? Um, when something challenging pops up, how does this person handle that? Um, you know, is this person personable? Do they good, do a good job of selling me on their company? Um, and, you know, part of that, I think it's important for a CEO to remember, even, even as maybe from a more technical background is, you know, a big part of your job as CEO is going to be selling whatever industry you're in, Right. You've got to you've got to sell your product or your service, but you've also got to sell investors on your company and on yourself. And so that ability, um, you know, there crosses over, if you will, right? If if you do a good job of selling me on your company, I'm more likely to believe that you're going to do a good job, you know, out in the world selling your product or service and, and have some success with it. Oh, Christian, I, I can't hear you. Apologize. But like I was basically saying is I really appreciate you unpacking that. That was really, really good info information. Now, you take more of an active position in your investing role, right? You don't you just write a check and say, hey, you know, go make me money, etc. You take more of an active positioning. Now, when you're writing a check, there are there certain criteria or there are certain kind of uh, deployment aspects that you like to see your money being used for. Uh, me, for example, when I'm investing to a certain company, I always enjoy wins on the marketing or the sales, or maybe even the infrastructure of the company itself. That's to me knows that, Hey, that's going to create a really good ARR on the back end or certain metrics. That's going to be a nice return uh, for the valuation. I want to get your response Brady, what do you like to see that money when they raise X amount of dollars in capital? How do you like to see that deployed? Sure. Um, it, it probably for me varies a little bit more company to company just because I, I tend to invest in, in, you know, such a diverse set of companies, you know, doing, doing different things. And so, 
you know, I, I think for me, you know, well, sorry, I guess one of the things you're pointing out, Christian, is you like to see a good plan for how that money is going to be used and some sense that, yep, we're going to spend it here and it's going to pay itself back there. And that's that's certainly the exact same test I'm looking for now. Now, sometimes in an earlier stage company, maybe the focus in the early days might be more on, you know, solving an engineering problem or, you know, doing some product design or, you know, um, even maybe in the very, very, very early days doing some some additional research or, you know, customer surveying, that sort of thing. Um, and so I don't, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not so strict as to say, no, my money must be used for X or Y or Z. Um, but I think I, what I do want to make sure I have a very good understanding of before I write a check is what is the plan for my money? And, and obviously probably other investors coming in at the same time, right? How much money you're planning to raise and what are you going to do with that? And, and what, are, what, you know, then what is the return, as you said, you know, the return on that investment going to be, right? We think we're going to spend, you know, this, let's say we're raising $2 million. We're going to spend this $2 million on these six things. That's going to get us to this point, right? X number of customers, X amount of revenue, you know, this growth trajectory, this kind of burn rate, you know, and, you know, in early stage investing, you know, those fine type of financial projections and, and metrics are always a bit of a, a swag, if you will, a bit of a guess. Um, and and I, I, I try not to, you know, be too strict in holding people to things, you know, hey, you said you were going to have uh, 37 customers by the end of Q3, you've only got 32, what's going wrong, right? Um, that, that doesn't mean you're failing, right? There, there are always things that go bump in the night and problems that, that startups face, but at least having an understanding, you said ahead of time, what's the plan for spending the money? And then as we're making progress, what's going on? And you know, if we're, things are slowing down or we haven't met our certain goals, why is that happening? And, and how are we gonna fix it or, or, or address it? Um, I think it's, it's all important for me. And, and one of the reasons I like to be so hands-on so I can you know, one, be aware of what's going on at the company and two, be helpful if, if there are areas where I can lend expertise. Now, when you're talking about active investor, you come in and I'd love for you to unpack kind of what you do for each company. Because um, I know you have a lot of different portfolio companies and each one of those companies is very contextual in regards to what you do, how you help, uh, what they need. Uh, but overall, I'd love for maybe just maybe talk about one or two and help us understand how you're able to come alongside them that are in this situation, facing this role, facing that growth pain, whatever it is, and you're able to kind of streamline the process, whatever that is. Help us understand what you're able to do because you're an active investor. Sure, sure. Well, it's interesting, Christian. At the top of the podcast, you mentioned you know some of the places I worked in the past. In the past, so Ask the Internet was a social networking company I started myself and eventually sold. Um, you know, Tintree was uh, hardware and software doing storage uh, for the the cloud and and enterprises. Um, Eucalyptus was a software company um, building some foundational software that allowed you to, to build a cloud within your own network. And so each one of those roles I had in the past, um, you know, in, in an operating, um, excuse me, in an operating capacity with, within those companies, um, you know, I, I had certain responsibilities and I learned how to do things, right. As, as we all do, right. You're, you're in charge of marketing. So you figure out, all right, how do we get the word out about this product? How do we, you know, talk to 
our engineers talk to customers and, and build the right thing. You know, you're in sales. How do we how do we get how do we get the product sold? How do we build a sales team? How do we grow, get the word out? How do we drive revenue? Uh, and so, you know, that that sort of operating expertise I have in the past, um, I, I feel like I can bring the bear and and help companies, you know, as they need it. Um, so I, I tend to, um, you know, the the approach I I often take with with investors and particularly with a new investment is I'll say to the CEO, like, listen, I'd love to be your first call when things are bad. And your last call when things are good, right? If, if things are all going well, everything's, you know, happening according to plan, we're executing, great. You know, once a month, once a quarter, shoot me an email, let me know, hey, we're kicking ass, things are great, um, all good. What I'd, where I'd much rather be is, you know, if you have a problem as a CEO, you know, something's not working. Um, it's always helpful, right, to have another set of eyes look at a problem. It's always helpful to, you know, Talk to someone else who's, you know, maybe got some experience or, or seen something like this in the past and, and get their thoughts. Doesn't mean I'm, you know, going to wave a magic wand and, and solve whatever problem a startup might have, but I can at least understand and, and potentially provide some insight. Maybe, you know, maybe I know someone in that industry who could be helpful. Maybe I, you know, I've seen this type of problem before and can tell you how we solved it at one of my old companies, you know, those sorts of things. And so that's kind of the, the approach I take. And you know, so I certainly, you know, while I like to think of myself as an active investor, I, I don't ever want to be a father, right? I don't ever want to be, you know, a guy who the, the, the CEO says, oh, man, I got to write that email to Brady. He's going to be bugging me. You know, that's that's never the, the kind of role I want to be in. However, if it's a, oh, man, we've we're trying to we're trying to form this partnership with this big player in our industry. And I, I just can't find a way in to talk to him. Uh, I wonder if Brady knows anyone there, or maybe, maybe he doesn't know anyone there, but maybe he had, he, you know, maybe one of his startups had a hard time and maybe they figured out a way to get in and maybe he's got some insight. So that kind of thing I feel like is, is where I or, or any investor can, can be useful. And um, so that's, that's kind of the approach I'm trying to take. Yeah, and that's why I appreciate Ken explaining because I'm hearing this a little bit because see, you have such an immense background and expertise in so many different avenues that it's contextual with whatever that you know um, company is facing at that point you can come alongside and be a very active uh, member in helping them overcome that. Now, I want to talk, we've always talked about you know successes and everybody loves success, but also we anticipate that we will certainly produce that will develop for whatever reason and then that could be just all across the board uh, i want to ask brady how do you have an uh an exit to minimize or contain your loss in those circles what do you build systems boundaries warrants you know kind of whatever to be able to you know minimize that loss uh in the in those you know situations that we don't want to expect but we anticipate sure Sure. And it's, you know, it's a great question. And it's, it's something I, and all investors sh should think about now the, the type of investing I do right uh, early stage, almost always um, equity investing. Um, there are <clears throat> limited ways to, um, you know, sort of protect you from downside. It's also, um, you know, as, as, as you know, Christian, and as you know, a lot of people do, the economics of venture investing are, are a little different than, than other types of investing, right? So if I'm, a, if I'm just investing in public market stocks, um, you know, 
stocks might go up, they might go down. <laughs> Hopefully very few of the public market stocks I invest in ever go to zero, right? And the stock may trade down, and you know, the company has some bad quarters, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, I can always sell my shares. And um, you know, most companies don't just go out of business one day. Um, on, on venture investing, it's different, right? Um, you know, you sort of know going in that a lot of these companies are going to fail. I mean, if you look at, you know, the well-quoted statistics, right, at least nine out of every 10 uh, early stage startups don't succeed. Um, and so you have to know as a venture investor now, I'm not hoping that nine out of the 10 companies I invest in go out of business, but I'm aware that's certainly possible. Um, and so, you know, there are things you can do as a venture investor to try and protect you on, you know, protect your downside. You know, there's things like liquidation preferences you can do or, you know, anti-dilution provisions and those sorts of things. And I've occasionally done deals with those. Um, it's not where I like to spend most of my time, frankly. Um, my thinking is, um, you know, as opposed to um, uh, fighting over, over table scraps that are going to occur when things go wrong, I'd rather... Um, try and make sure I have potential on the upside when things go right. And I, I know, you know, as an early stage investor that some of these deals are, are, are not going to work. Um, and certainly when, when a company's struggling, um, that's where I spend a lot of time trying to help them, you know, whether that means maybe find an acquisition that might not be the, the glamorous billion dollar exit we were hoping for, but maybe it's a way to, you know, salvage what the company's invested in, save some jobs for the people who are working there. And maybe as investors, we you know get uh, some, all our money back or some of our money back, which is certainly better than zero. So, you know, we spend a lot of time on, on those situations. Um, as, as I sort of alluded to earlier, sometimes when things are going great, there's no need for me or any other wrestler to get involved. Just, just you know, sit back and enjoy the ride, which is, which is great. Um, but when things are going bad and, and the company's struggling, I try and be as helpful as I can and, and try and, you know, mitigate my losses by finding good or creative outcomes that, that are maybe better than just we, we shut the doors and fired everybody. Well, I really appreciate you being authentic and sharing this because it's it's a subject we don't discuss that often. We all talk about, you know, I understand when, when I'm talking to a VC, they anticipate that, okay, majority of these are not going to produce anything. Well, you know, outweigh all of our losses. And that's our anticipation. That's what I, kind of our expectation as well. Um, however, though, I'm always intrigued to see okay, what does that thought process look like in regards to, hey, how do we mitigate the loss, right? Because there is, like you mentioned as well, Brady, if we spend so much of our time and energy trying to mitigate a loss, when we could spend a majority of our time and energy on producing the bigger wins, you know, what does that look like, right? It's, it's kind of give and pull a little bit. And because we've also been told, hey, never give up, never quit, right? Never surrender. Right. And those things that sometimes you do have to you have to quit and maybe just quit that strategy that company is not working uh we've tried to raise x amount of dollars and numerous times numerous things and it's just not producing that's fine and you have to like you mentioned kind of mitigate that so what are those tough conversations brady that do you have maybe see you know because obviously i would imagine you, you have to be in that uh you've been in those situations after 20 plus years in the investor world um where hey you, you realize okay i could spend my time helping these people not teachable they're not coachable they're not it's not going to produce anything or you could spend this spend your time with this other company that is a holding company uh that's one of your portfolio companies and like hey 
things are rocking, they got traction, they're kicking butt, and we can scale this, and that can mitigate that, or that could kind of offset that loss over here. So just help me understand your perspective and that conversation, that dialogue, Brady. Sure, sure. I think whatever type of investor investing you are doing, um, learning to um, control the downside as much as possible is really key. And, and that often means, as you, as you alluded to, Chris, Christian, cutting your losses. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't mean that in a, in a harsh way of, well, this company's not going to make it, I'm just going to write it off, not spend any time there. But at the same time, you know, I think we're all, um, you know, we're all emotional people, right? We all become invested in the things we spend time on. <clears throat> and it's, it's hard to remain uh, objective and realistic about things sometimes. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the dirty secrets, frankly, of the venture industry is companies are doing well don't need investors, right? Um, I mean, they, they occasionally need money, but in terms of, you know, the expertise that, that venture guys can, like myself, can provide, it can be useful, but lots of companies, you know, the most successful companies, you know, it's not because, oh, XYZ venture investor made a great introduction and that changed the world for me, right? It's because they had a great product and a great team and they worked really hard and they succeeded. Um, now, on the downside, you know, that's where, you know, as... Uh, as we were talking about earlier, you can spend most of your time. And I think that's where it's important to be judicious with your time, right? I mean, it's an old cliche, but it's the only thing you can never get back. And so, you know, if you're spending 90% of your time with a company that's never going to make it, that's probably a bad investment. It's probably the worst investment you can make. And so being realistic about that company and saying, okay, you know, we, when we made this investment, we thought it was a good idea. We, we had faith. We all worked hard. It hasn't worked. Um, now it's time to move on. And, and that can be a hard thing. And, and again, I, I tend to have a, a personal relationship with, with the companies and the founders I invest in. So I don't like to, you know, disappear on them and just, just stop returning phone calls. You, you hear those stories. I, I want to make sure that's, I'm never accused of that. But at the same time, I, I also want people to be realistic because, you know, as an entrepreneur, you only have one life to live. And, and so if you're, you know, spending your time um, just digging a deeper hole that you're never going to be able to get out of, it's important to, to at some point say, hey, nope, this isn't working. I hoped it worked. I poured my, my heart and my soul into this, but it's, it's not, it's not going to go forward and figure out something else, right? Um, and so, so helping entrepreneurs come to that unfortunate realization is, is sometimes a, a part of my job as well. And one where, you know, you try and be very sensitive and, and, and understanding, but at the same time, realistic and, and letting people know that, you know, hey, for whatever reason, this isn't going to work. And, and so let's, let's find something else. Um, and, and, and it's a challenge, but, but, you know, I think you try and do it with humanity and, and, and realize that it, it's part of the job as well. Yeah, Brady, I, this is such a needed conversation. I appreciate that because even though we're saying some stuff that's needed to be said, you know, it, it's it's all perspective and it's all having that tough conversation. And that's what leaders do. That's what really true investors and CEOs having those tough conversations when the toughest times. But also, if you guys are able to have that those tough conversations and actually get through it, you build something so so miraculous, beautiful. Now, Brady, on the positive side, exit. Um, I know there's tons of different exit strategies. Uh, 
um, look at your perspective, Brady, uh, and it's very contextual, depending upon obviously company, the offer, where it's at in the growth stage, et cetera, and what offer. But I would love to ask, is there one exit that, uh, strategy that you prefer than the other? Is it more of an M&A kind of side of things, or is it more of an IPO, or uh, what does that look like for yourself? And if it's more contextual, help me understand what goes into uh, M&A, you know, strategy as um, uh, exit versus IPO exit. Sure, sure. I think the the most important thing that I've learned um, is that you know, as an investor, you certainly have um, your preferences, right? For each company, right? I, you know, geez, I, I think this company's got a long way to run. I don't think they should sell now, right? I think they should keep going. Or <coughs> maybe, geez, we've we've had a pretty good run here, and there's some clouds on the horizon. Maybe it makes sense to to kind of get out, or you know. Here's this big player. Um, boy, if, if, if we were part of their company, that would really provide the, the additional um, growth and, and, and chance to really, you know, um, explode. And so, you, you know, you, you always have those thoughts in mind. Of this, this is what I think is best for this company. But I often think the most important thing is actually to try and understand what the CEO is, is thinking and feeling um, and, and the leadership team as a whole. Um, but you know, there are, there are folks who um, can't imagine doing anything else, right? They live it, they die it. Um, and for them, even if the, you know, what seems like the right exit might be, might be an M&A transaction, um, are they really going to be happy with that? And are they, you know, are they going to look back a year or two from now and go, man, right? my investors really pushed me to sell this company. And, you know, now I'm stuck. I'm a, you know, I'm a VP within some huge company and my, my job's not the same and I, you know, I'm just not happy. And you know, that's not the only consideration, um, <clears throat> but I, I think it's a factor that gets overlooked is sometimes an investor, we, we kind of only, only think through our own eyes. And, and similarly on the other, the other way, right? There are times I think, and this is probably where it comes up, frankly, more, where as an investor, you go, wow, this company is killing it. They have got a long way to run. We're just going to keep growing, kicking ass, and we are going to make billions. And, you know, there are times when the CEO or, or, or the, the, the management team in general kind of goes, no, we're, we're, not, we're not ready for, for five more years, right? We've, we've already put a lot into this. Um, and, you know, for us to keep going it alone, that, that feels like more of a challenge. And, you know, sure, that, that IPO seems like it's, you know, a year or two away, but uh, maybe not. And, you know, and, you know, and so I, I think particularly in those cases, it's really important to say, okay, not that not the CEO or, or, or the founding team has lost the fire or necessarily that, but, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's it's what feels right for them, and and even if you as an investor are thinking, oh no, keep keep going, keep the hammer down, you know, we're we're, we're gonna, you know, a year from now we'll be worth even more, um, you know, it, ultimately as an investor, right, at, at best you're a coach, you're probably mostly a spectator, but you're certainly not on the field playing the game, and so you know if if the players are tired, if if they feel like they've given it their all, I think you need to to really listen to that. So so that's my sense. 
You know, it's, it's so interesting because I remember when I was trading stocks and uh, earlier on, and I remember you had to have a strategy uh, to know when to pull your money out, right? Uh, because obviously everybody loves that huge explosive boom. Oh man, wonderful. And there were numerous times where I didn't have that discipline. I learned very quickly. It shot up four, five, seven, ten dollars $10. And I was like, hey, it's just going to keep going up. And then all of a sudden I learned my lesson when all of a sudden that sucker went all the way down and it dropped very quickly. And I was actually in the negative. And so it's one of those things, Brady, and I appreciate you explain that because it is, you know, acknowledging, hey, you know what? So I started, you know, just a, just a side note, I started taking 80% and went up three, $4. I took 80% out and then the, let the 20% run, whether it went up or down, and then I would mitigate that loss. And so that was consistent regardless, because I knew that, hey, I'm going to uh, allocate my, my wins whenever I can. So Brady, I appreciate explaining that a little bit. I want to talk about, um, there are so many deal flow um, that, that's obviously going across your, your desk. Uh, you're an investor, so there are a ton of people that are say, hey, Brady, give me, a, give me some money, give me some money. <laughs> and so I, I want to ask, what is... What is one strategy that you like to be um, approached when, when there's someone, you know, a founder, a CEO, they're reaching out to you and saying, hey, I love you to invest. What's that conversation look like? How do you like to be approached as an investor? Uh, because you see it as more of a, uh, as a synergistic collaboration and relationship long-term with that company. And so I want to make sure for those that are listening, maybe looking to raise capital at some point for their own business, uh, making sure that they have that right approach and that proper perspective in regards to having those conversations with you, Brady. What does that look like for you? Sure, sure. I'll say the first thing, which um, is probably known certainly to you and, and maybe to some of the folks in the audience, but um, there's nothing better than uh, a warm introduction. Um, and so I would say the majority of the deals I've ever invested in have been people either I know directly or someone I know directly reaches out to me and says, hey, this is worthwhile taking a look at. Someone I know and trust tells me that. And, you know, on the one hand, that's that's tough advice to hear as an entrepreneur, maybe particularly someone who doesn't come from um, a world of startups and technology, right? Someone who's not based in Silicon Valley, maybe lives in another country, maybe, you know, didn't grow up wealthy and doesn't know a bunch of people who do investing, right? That makes it all the much more challenging. Um, but I, I think it's important to be realistic about, you know, how the world works and doesn't, doesn't mean you can't succeed if you're not coming from those areas. Um, but but it, it does make it more challenging. And, and, and it's also a system you can use to your advantage. And so, you know, as an entrepreneur, if I'm looking to get to Brady Murray or Christian Evans, whoever it might be to, to, to raise an investment, I'm sure I can send him a cold email or find him on LinkedIn or, or what have you. Um, but, you know, people like me get a bunch of cold emails and, and, a, and a bunch of, you know, LinkedIn requests. Um, whereas if you can find a way to get to someone who knows me and have that person say, hey, uh, you know, I, I met this person. They got an interesting startup idea. You ought to talk to her. Or, you know, here's a guy I used to work with and he's a pretty smart guy. You ought to talk to him. You know, that's far more likely to, you know, raise, raise above the level of, you know, the, the, the huge inbound flow I get from everyone. Um, you know, so that, 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 you know, hopefully is somewhat helpful. I mean, the other thing I would say in terms of, you know, a cold pitch, you know, somebody hitting me up with an, an email or, or what have you out of the blue, um, I would say there, there's some real basic rules, I think, that are, um, you know, 
heavily uh, heavily influence your your chances of kind of rising above um, the rest and and kind of making to the top of the pile and at least getting red. Um, you know your your outreach can't be too long. Um, I think you should uh, you know immediately tell me what you're doing, right? So you know lots of times I, I get a, a cold outreach from someone and they're like, "Hey, love to talk to you. Can we set aside thirty minutes to chat?" Well who are you and why, right? I mean, you know, I'm busy. You're probably busy too, right? I don't, you know, often just take 30 minutes to sit down and talk to someone without any reason why, right? So, you know, here's my name, right? I'm Christian. Here's my background, right? I know this area. Um, here's my company. Here's what we're doing. Here's why we're different. Here's how we're going to win. And then if you've got any kind of growth metrics, right, you know, we're, we're growing, you know, 500%, you know, quarter over quarter, or, you know, we've, we have 3000 signups in the last, you know, two weeks or whatever it might be. Right. You know, and, and that's what is, I don't know what I just reeled off, but you know, it's five or six bullet points. It's certainly not a full page email. Um, and I look at that and I immediately go, all right, this is Christian. Here's what he's doing. Here's why he's, you know, here's why he knows what he's doing. Here's how he's doing. You know, I've got all the relevant details. And by the way, that still doesn't mean we're going to have a conversation because, you know, you might be, you know, hey, I'm, I'm Christian. I'm, you know, doing some really cool thing in, you know, Web3 NFTs. Great. Might be a great company. I don't invest in that stuff. So I'll say thanks, but no thanks. But at least neither one of us has wasted our time, right? Whereas if you sent me the 30-minute email and we actually set up the meeting and sat down, within the first minute, you'd say, okay, thanks for having coffee with me. Let's talk. And within a minute, I'd go, well, this is a waste of your time and mine because I'm not going to invest and, and you could be talking to someone who might be. Um, so, you know, I think I think the the mistakes I see are kind of the the general outreach where you're not telling me why you're why you want to contact me and what you're doing and then also you know the the overly long one right you know it's four pages listing you know here's you know here's my three co-founders and where they went to high school and this guy was the you know captain of the jv volleyball team you know like again irrelevant details someday if i'm going to invest this might all be interesting to me but i'm trying to make a you know a very quick decision as i go through hundreds of emails a day is this one worth following up on and, you know, if it's three pages, the odds of me reading through those three pages is pretty low. So <laughs> it sounds like you've gotten all sorts of uh, email traffic on that, you know, all sorts of things, you know, from the, from the very, you know, 30 minutes, let's just jump on a phone call to this long gated, you know, book. And it's like, okay, guys, I don't need all this information. So I appreciate yeah. you talking about that because at the end of the day, it is coming down to relationships. But one of the best and the most effective is through warm intros. Uh, having a conversation, you're, you're leveraging someone else's credibility and, and their kind of ecosystem and saying, hey, you know what, Brady, you should connect up with James. James, you know, you guys should have a cool synergistic relationship, cool deal flow. Cool. That's awesome. Brady, I really appreciate you being on just talking about obviously the ups and downs, the way you obviously come into a company and helping them really scale and hitting those growth stages, uh, but also helping me understand your criteria, what that looks like. And then also, you know, when to, when to fold and when to, you know, obviously mitigate that loss and pull away and focus on those bigger, uh, bigger wins. Um, really love this conversation, Brady. If some of my audience wants to reach out to you, maybe have that conversation, maybe that dialogue, maybe other investors that want to connect and network with you. How do they reach out to you, bud? Yeah, e email is probably the best way. It's uh, just Brady at EppsCreek.com. It's B-R-A-D-Y uh, at Epps, E-P-P-E-S-C-R-E-E-K.com.
um, probably email is the best way to get me. Awesome. You guys, those links will be in the description below his email. I'll put that right there. So you can literally just email him real quick. And then Brady always loved to uh, ask my guest, is there any last words of wisdom they'd like to share with their audience? Uh, oh, I should have something very, very smart to say here, but I don't. Um, no, Chris, I really, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I think, um, I, I guess the, the general advice I would have for people is, um, you know, I, I think sticking with, you know, and people always say follow your passion, which eh, I'm not sure that's the best advice I've ever heard. Um, but um, I, I would say do things that you know, um, you know, as an investor, one real red flag for me is somebody trying to start a company in an area they know nothing about. Um, so, you know, you know, I, I worked in, you know, whatever it is, right. I worked in software development for 10 years. Now I've got a new idea for a software development tool. I think people really need, wow, that sounds intriguing. You know what you're talking about, but you know, Hey, I, I read a bunch of articles about how the metaverse is going to be big. So I'm starting a metaverse company. I mean, it doesn't mean you're going to fail, but the odds of you succeeding are just far less. So, you know, I, that, that thing you've done in the past may not be, you know, your passion, quote unquote, but at least, you know, coming from an area where you have some expertise and, and you know, some unique insight knowledge you can bring, I think is, is far more likely to, to drive success. So, so far, that's all. That's a lot of good wisdom, man. And uh, guys, that is my friend, the CEO and founder of Epps Creek Venture, the one and only Braid Murray. Brady Murray. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis Podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can. Yo, this is Christian D. Evans, Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. We thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode. If you feel and you know that this was valuable to you, please show some love to our amazing guests by liking this, by commenting on this, by making sure that you do a nice five-star review and just show some love to our guests. That'd be really awesome. Also, make sure you share this with a friend, a family, a colleague, someone that you believe would bring value to their life right now. Uh, and guys, we just want to say thank you again for just being part of our community. If you want to have more resources, don't be afraid. Go to christiandevans.com. You can actually schedule a phone call with me or you can send me an email at christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. That's christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. Always love to hear some feedback and let me know what is the number one or two things that you are struggling in your business and your life and we'll make sure we have those conversations. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis podcast. And until next time, remember, be uncommon if you can. Cheers.